0: Welcome to episode 164 of the 1099 for the week of September 3rd, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renaud, and with me today is a narrative designer and writer for games like FTL, Into the Breach, Original Sin 2, Prey, KOTOR 2, and Fallout New Vegas, who's currently working on Dying Light 2 and an unannounced game with Ken Levine. That intro could have been way longer, but I decided to cut it short. Chris Avalone. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Josiah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Are you at a point in your life... Where you kind of sit around and go, like, Wait, I totally did make Champions of Norath in 2004. Do you kind oh, of forget certain things you made God, all the way back then?
1: That was that you just suddenly just like grabbed me pull, from the yeah. present and pulled me back into the past. Wow, you Champions, have a wiki whoa. page,
0: which is a dangerous weapon for me. I can go oh, real far back.
1: Yeah, and the wiki page is sometimes even accurate. That's like, <laughs> that's that's even <laughs> crazy. Yeah, wow, man, Champions of Norath. Wow. Oh, yeah, I'm something to go off on a tangent there. I was like, Uh, yeah, like we'd, I just. Resigned from Interplay because you know it seemed like everything was falling apart, and then uh, the Snowblind guys who did uh, who did um, uh, Dark Alliance Baldur's Dark Alliance they uh, they they wrote to me and they're like, hey. Um, Okay, are you available for any like script doctoring? And I'm like, well, you, I, what's a script doctor? And they're like, well, it's somebody who <laughs> do does a PhD else.
0: for that? Do you need an actual doctorate?
1: <laughs> I was like, well, I got one in the University of Mexico. Does that count? And they're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, and then they're like, well, we got the script, and I'd like to do some ed, you know, changes to it. And I'm like, oh, I'd love to. And then, uh, yeah, that worked out. And then, and then um, I was almost tempted to keep working on Champions of Nauru because it was all just you know you work from home, you're freelancing, and um, and but then I got you know I got onto Obsidian. I'm like, well, I probably should have a full time job, and I do regret that. But anyway, yeah, no, that was a fantastic experience. People still ask me about that and Dark Alliance. They th- those games were were very much loved. But Snowblind is the one to thank. I just did the uh, the script doctoring, as it were.
0: <laughs> I want that title on my resume so badly. Like I still don't exactly know what a script doctor is, but that's so good. And I, Dark Alliance was actually my first introduction into sort of rpgs of that nature sort of this console almost diablo style game and i remember i was never a pc person so when i played that it was it was the moment of oh my god these games are out there what is this and being so into it and getting dark alliance 2 which ended up being kind of a rare game later on where you couldn't find it as many places and i had friends who were super into champions of Norath, so even if that was just a deep deep pull to say that game there's actually a reason for that because i do have this appreciation for games um, of that nature but you you mentioned before freelancing at that time uh, which means you're usually working on a lot of different projects the name of this podcast is the 1099 for pretty obvious reasons once you start thinking about freelancing and i can only read (laughs) one book at once and i often find that it's best if i focus on one major writing project at once but you've worked on so many different games in that freelance capacity where You're not often just locked into one team. You might have multiple irons in the fire to pay the bills, to make sure you're staying busy. So do these writing projects ever overlap where you might need to, let's say, for example, not to get you to say stuff about projects you're working on now, (laughs) but where you need to write something for Ken Levine while also staying in that zombie mindset for Dying Light 2?
1: For me, actually working on multiple projects uh, can help with writer's block. Because when you get stuck on one thing, you can just switch off to something else. And then when you're doing that other thing, you can sort of let whatever problem on that other project sort of percolate for a while. And, um, and then when you're working on that other project and you've got that problem with the other project, uh, you, you can sort of eventually come to a solution and you're still making progress. It's, it's kind of hard to explain, but basically like uh, sometimes when you're focused entirely on one thing that can sort of be your whole life and that can actually end up being a hurdle you have to overcome because it's it's taking up so much attention if you do hit writers you know writers or designers block you just get it's like a full stop but if you have multiple projects you just sort of switch around and keep the momentum going and sometimes working on other projects you figure out a solution for the thing that you're struggling with and then you just go back there like oh i know how to solve this now because i was able to sort of like not dwell on it too much by being able to work on something else that was a very long-winded answer and very confusing but no it's totally
0: not i've just i realize i am exactly the opposite like i wish i had that ability to the way i'm going to fix my writer's block is add more work that would make me a much more productive <laughs> human <laughs> Me fixing writer's block is like how long can i stare at this ceiling before suddenly words decide they want to come back to me well
1: I will say, like, I, I used to be uh, that way, actually. Uh, earlier on when I was working at Interplay, uh, the first few years there, I, I was very much, I can't imagine working on multiple projects. And actually, our division director at the time, Marco Green, he, uh, he was very much multiple project mentality. I'm like, Mark, I don't understand how you do it. Like, I, I need to focus on one thing and just, you know, carry that through. And he's like, no, for me, multiple projects are, that's, that, that's how I prefer to work. And I, I, I didn't get it, but now I do. So I, I
0: much much kudos to much kudos to Marco Green. Do you ever you mentioned before that you know writing for multiple projects might remove writer's block for a different one? But do you ever start writing something for Dying Light Two? Maybe a certain concept, a certain story beat, a certain character, and of course not copy and paste that over to the Ken Levine game, but that inspires you in some way. We're like, oh, now that I've written out this story beat in Dying Light Two this other one that I was really stuck on in the Ken Levine project makes way more sense.
1: Um, it's, it hasn't been ever exactly like that, but it's like uh, sometimes like if I develop a character or a, or a quest line for Dying Light 2, sometimes what helps is because I'm doing it for Dying Light 2, that immediately cuts it off from me exploring the same quest in another game so actually Mm -hmm. it helps focus my options for for other titles too so i'm like oh well i did this in this game so i'm not going to do it here and here and here Uh like uh and and sometimes that, that that does occur while i'm while i'm writing for projects
0: Uh, While I was exploring your Wikipedia page, which again, it's weird to say say out loud, but uh, I noticed you had three games come out in 2017, at least three games with your name in the credit. And of course, you probably put in work well before the actual year that came out. But what's the highest number of games you've worked on in a single year where you might be juggling writing stories for one in the early quarter, then middle, you're doing narrative design for this game at the end, maybe you're doing a third one
1: so I'm, I'm actually looking at my task board right now
0: oh I was really hoping you were looking at your own Wikipedia page to be like oh wondering what bro. Chris
1: has done so this year I'm gonna hazard a guess that I have worked on 12 at one time
0: what how that's well, my really deep uh, question about that how
1: <laughs> well I was actually talking with um, uh, an old colleague of mine uh, about this and uh, he he had the same question and because we had both worked on RPGs, I was like, well, it's because I worked on RPGs that all of this stuff is a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) And and what I mean by that is like, um, so uh, Prey, for example, was a lot of work, but it was nowhere near writing a companion for an RPG. Because like when you write for RPGs, like there's a lot of writing, there's a lot of uh, scripting, there's... A uh, huge amount of reactivity I've taken into account, but if you're like writing for uh, like FTL, for example, which is, still has reactivity, but you don't have to worry about um, other factors with you know role-playing elements, um, it's just a lot easier to to write because the the game system is different, and the genre is different, and and also um, you know obviously with games like Prey, you you want to keep it short, you want to keep it simple, you want to you know focus the reactivity. But it's not as complicated as writing for an RPG. So sometimes, like, so for example, with like FTL, um, when I was working the advanced edition, like, you know, I am probably had like about a hundred encounters to write. But after RPGs, they were just really easy to write out. And I'm like, wow, I can do this in two weekends. <laughs> 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 and I'm all done. So, so when I have a lot of projects on the plate, um, usually those tasks uh, for most of them are pretty simple
0: in that same vein can it almost be refreshing to write something like dying light 2 after you've done so many RPGs in a row because that's not in any capacity taking a shot at what dying light 2 is going as you know going for as a story game or as uh, character interactions but you're not building out as much lore and documentation and dialogue trees that might be in a Kotor two or in a New Vegas, and it's a different way that you're tackling that. So, have just for that particular project, let's say, have you enjoyed maybe a bit of a change of pace where you're writing a here's kind of a end of the world zombie game versus I'm <laughs> building out the Star Wars universe?
1: Yeah. Um, so. I guess uh, when I when I take on a project, um, and I and I like Dying Light One very much, which is you know why I got really excited when the, the opportunity to work on the sequel came up. Um, for me, it was like, oh well, you know I'm I'm you know I'm familiar with the first game, and this is sort of a, a genre I haven't tried before. Like I've never actually you know written, written a quote unquote zombie game before. And then, but Dying Light's a little different than other zombie genres out there so then that that becomes interesting too so you got it gets two big pluses for it um is that a breath of fresh air yeah um but i it's not that i mind working in rpgs the only thing i ever find exhausting about rpgs is if they're not trying to do anything different or they're sort of sticking to the the classic mold or even if they're ignore ignoring the things that make them special like you know one problem i had with um uh, with Polars of Eternity is that, uh, you know, I, I did enjoy writing for it, but I felt like a lot of the core premises uh, for the universe were often being ignored in the storyline. Uh, they were being ignored just in the, you know, the physics of the world. And and the fact that if you if you are going to do RPG and you are going to do something off the beaten path and make it special, then try and find more ways to involve that in the storyline, the lore. Otherwise, it's sort of a wasted opportunity. And, that, and that's the only thing that exhausts me.
0: And you've, as far as I know, never worked on a Dragon Age game, correct? I have not, no. Okay. But so the reason I bring it up is we need to talk about writing the lore for RPGs. And one thing that's really commonplace in long 100-hour Western RPGs are all these different notes and documents that you find where suddenly you're reading like two pages describing this very specific instance in this city or within the mythos of the world. And I would assume... of people will pick up that note and never read it or click through it as quickly as possible to see like, well, if I read through all these, quote unquote, read through all these, maybe I'll unlock a trophy or maybe I'll get through this. Can writing, and I'm assuming you've done some of that in the past, can writing dialogue like that be disheartening knowing I'm just more writing something that maybe this small corner of the audience will read and appreciate while the majority of people see text like that and just ignore it? So
1: uh, have you played Witcher 3? I have. Um, so, Witcher Three does it right. Uh, so, and any any narrative designer should also take this into account. Where, if you're going to do notes and journals and documents like that in a game, um, make a reward hidden in there. Because uh, uh, I Witcher Three trains trains you really early on that those notes aren't bullshit. Like, if you read them, you're going to get something pretty important out of them. Like, you're going to include where treasure is stashed, a uh, clue how to solve a quest. And they're actually valuable pieces of information. So whenever I would get a you know a, a journal or you know torn page out of a book uh, in Witcher, like I, I'm like, I better scour this and see what this lore item is trying to tell me because I know it's valuable because the game is designed that way. And yeah. um, if if you do throw away like lore dumps, that's that's just something you shouldn't do as a narrative designer. Like and some some writers get. You know, really happy about, oh, well, yeah, this is, you know, this is exposition time. And I'm like, nah, well, you should always put something game mechanic wise in there that makes it worth the player's while. Because, you know, you can combine the two so that you're actually catering to players that actually want to advance their character and, you know, be part of the gameplay loop while integrating the lore at the same time but one or the other just can sort of leave the world a little bit flat. So it's all it's all a matter of how you write, it, but it, there should be some game purpose behind it. And I think Witcher 3 does an excellent job of it.
0: I think Ni no Kuni 2 did something similar to that too or at least another recent RPG I played where you open it up and essentially it's like you've unlocked a new recipe for a weapon or a piece of armor and Yep. That there's that hook, and maybe you don't end up reading the entire thing, but you at least open it, and then you start staring at it, and maybe after you start staring at it, you're like, I might actually read this to realize why did I get this recipe by just opening this.
1: Yeah, and and sometimes like if you don't assign a quest to it, uh, players feel even smarter when they figure out what the actual clue was. Like we, so we started trying to do this in um, uh, this one canceled game back at Obsidian, uh, like Aliens Crucible. And the example I try to point to is like, hey, like, so when you're doing lore dumps like this, which we, we shouldn't call them lore dumps because that's, that's what <laughs> we're trying to get away from, is um, so like, for example, suppose you have the security captain's log and he's like talking about how he's getting nervous about things in the base. So he always keeps like a loaded shotgun and extra ammo underneath his bed. And then he goes on, talks about some other shit going on in the base. But any player that reads that's like, I wonder what would happen if I go find the captain of the guards' quarters, look under the bed, and lo and behold, there's the shotgun and all the ammo, but I knew where to look because I took the time to read that log. Stuff like that I love.
0: I, that is actually probably the best way to do it because it avoids the I'm just going to thumb through this and wait until I get the notification saying I got yeah. something and actually – I hate to say forces you to read it, but it encourages you to read it and you feel like you're in on something. You're in on it with the developers. We're like, oh, I just, I found the treasure map that you hid in this book. And yes, I had to read. You feel like you're
1: participating
0: versus being led by the nose. Exactly. Uh, This week we've had the big puddle disaster of 2018 where uh, (laughs) everyone's talking about the different sizes in puddles and the E3 demo of Spider-Man versus now, which is high up there on the The weirdest conversations I've seen on Twitter, it's really not actually that high up. There's been way weirder, but it's been all consuming for a bit. And I think that highlights just how a lot of people who play games don't know how games are made, which is fine, because if you haven't had the job, it's hard to just assume things like that. And I think one thing that I know I don't know that well, I'm still early in game development. I assume a lot of people don't know either is at what stage of the development process does someone like you who is doing narrative, who's doing narrative design actually come in? Uh, I would assume, and this is just in my brain, correct me, narrative design seems like something you'd want earlier on in the process to set the foundation of the game's theme while well, writing can be done later on for character dialogue, for those different mm-hmm. notes that we talked about uh, earlier, for just maybe general flow of certain scenes. When do you often enter a game's life cycle? I know it's different from project to project, but when you're doing narrative design, when are you often coming in?
1: Well, ideally, uh, if I'm working on an RPG or a story-heavy game, um, ideally, whoever the lead writer is should be there on day one. Um, However, I have been... I have been... Part of the stage, part of a a game, part of game projects, almost at a whole bunch of different points. And And the weird thing is like, no one, no, no one particular point is prevalent than any other. Sometimes it's been right at the outset. Sometimes it's been, hey, we've been working on this for three months, but we're not, you know, going into full production yet because there's some stuff we want to work out sometimes it is during full production We're like hey we got all the pipelines figured out you know but we need dialogue for all you know all these characters or quest lines for this part of the game or we need to flesh out the lore in this area before you know the designers jump onto it and then sometimes like it's been the script doctoring thing or i come in during the last three months of production they're like and they're like oh shit we like you know this isn't going very well and (laughs) Can you look at this? And I'm like, well, let me let me put on my doctor's cap <laughs> call, and to put on my stethoscope. And oh, so, oh my God, the patient is dead. Let me see if I can resurrect it. Um, and and all of those, like, I there's been no one particular stage of the process that's more common than than the other. And and each part of that process is fun, even even when it's late on a game, because you know, even when you're doing the script doctoring thing, there's kind of a fun element in sort of being the story plumber, where you're like, well, there's a, there's a problem with the pipes here, but uh, let me see what I can do to fix it." Because you actually can sort of make a game out of like, well, here's all, the, here's all the pieces you have in your narrative. Like, here's all the character models. Here's the voice actors that are already recorded. Um, what can I do to move those pieces around to try and improve the experience? And that's actually a lot of fun to do.
0: And uh, um, I've had to do that a few points in my career, and um, it's just sort of a fun challenge. I gotta say, script doctor way better than story plumber. I would much rather be called a script doctor than a story plumber. <laughs> I'm not like I'm, I would probably include that on my LinkedIn page, but it'd be way further down. Like and definitely at the top, it would say script doctor.
1: But the thing is, like, I feel bad whenever like uh, they they want to credit me as a as a script doctor because then I'm like, well, first off, um, I don't think that's a very flattering term to anyone who who may have. Written the narrative before. I always say, look, if you're going to do that, just do like writing or additional writing, but don't don't say script doctor because that that might hurt people's feelings when they don't need to be hurt.
0: <laughs> do you have you ever hesitated to come onto a project that late and be a quote unquote script doctor? Where, like you said, maybe they have the oh god, this has gone south. We don't know what to do. We're shipping. We need an actual narrative. In the situation where you might only have three months to turn something around, are you worried about putting your name? In those credits, because you—that's a really late stage of doing it, and you might not turn around, and the story might come out not work, and suddenly it's that's your name in the credits for that story.
1: Um, well, I only hesitate. Uh, so, f- so first of all, I don't, I don't worry about that. Like, I just always try and do the the best job possible in the time provided. And you know, if I get if I get any knocks for that, then I gladly accept them, and I'm always happy to explain the process that went on. Um, the, the the only The only times that I hesitate is. So as a freelancer, I only really take projects that I'm excited about or I think I'm going to learn something from. Or, you know, like, for example, like, it's a genre I haven't worked with or, oh, I haven't worked with VR before. Like, I'd love love to sort of dip my toes in that. Um, The only times I hesitate is when there's nothing new the project will be offering. Like, oh, you know, know, it's the usual traditional fantasy fair or they're not really exploring this theme very well. But the big negative is, like, if in early conversations I'll say – various things and then it's clear the person either either isn't listening or completely disagrees on how to fix it mm-hmm. and, or their solution I'm like well I don't think that's gonna work at that point I, I I would probably back away but that really hasn't happened yet
0: do you have a favorite way of crafting a story a favorite time to get into the project whether it's script doctoring way late where you're working with something that's already established or maybe coming in from the start and someone asking you to help build out their world build out their characters build out the entire lore do you prefer going from scratch or do you actually like the maybe the rush of coming in late and trying to put pieces together
1: well both both have advantages and disadvantages but um my my preference is always to come in after someone has basically done the pitch deck Hmm. for a project where they're like we know what game systems we want to do we know what kind of feelings we want the player to experience in the genre and, and a lot of the gameplay systems are already answered because uh, ideally the narrative should should complement the gameplay systems, whether you know it's you know faction reputation or you know here's how combat's going to work or you know it's a, a debate class RPG or whatever it is. like n- knowing what the core gameplay mechanic and the loop is going to be and the and the team is pretty confident about that, that's when I prefer to come in. And then do the story work. And I'm like, okay, well now I have the direction and I know the, I know the thrust the story should have to support that gameplay loop and sort of explain away any, any, you know, questions the player may have about it. And um, if I'm working with an established franchise, uh, there is a, there is a challenge in the sense that you have to sort of do all the research Like, you know, with Star Wars, like you have to absorb like, oh, you know, what storylines have been done before? Like, uh, you know, if so, can we do it better? Like, there's a lot of absorption there. But then once you have those bookends, like there's an advantage and like, well, I know what Star Wars, you know, story parameters are. So there are certain questions that are answered off the bat. But if you're like doing a project from scratch then there's an equal amount of work that you would normally spend doing research and setting up those parameters and bookends so that you can answer those questions like, oh, okay, well, this new universe I created, here are certain things that we are going to do and we are not going to do. And
0: So yeah, each has advantages and drawbacks. Did you ever get worried about breaking the Star Wars lore where suddenly you create like a, a yellow and, and green lightsaber <laughs> and someone's like, that doesn't work because, and then just long-winded answer that goes totally over your head where you, you mentioned research before to make sure you're not doing the same story beats or anything like that. But was it also research to make sure you're not doing crazy shit within a universe that people care a lot about?
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and actually that's one of the um, responsibilities for any narrative designer or writer on a project is that you should be so familiar with the franchise you're writing for that you're being respectful for it. And you also intrinsically know what the rules are so that you don't break them. And that worked out really well in Star Wars because even though it required like, a lot of research to cover all the bases, Um, that also meant that when we got feedback from LucasArts, like, it was very minimal. Like, I've said this before in uh, other instances, but, like, you know, we only got, like, five or six comments on Nights of the Republic 2, but that was because I'd like to think that, uh, you know, we'd done so much research on the franchise that we were being respectful for it. And there were even advantages where... uh, We'd go into meetings and they're like, well, we noticed, you know, one of your companions is a Wookiee slaver and you just can't do that. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, Mike, actually, in Young Jedi Knights, number seven. <laughs> and I, I was able to quote him. I didn't look, look. like they, they, he's one of the principal antagonists in this, this kid series on Star Wars. Literally, he's like, and the best part was like the, the, the quote unquote librarian for LucasArts was there. Librarian's kind of like the keeper of the lore and those people are really important you know for for especially like, like World of Warcraft or Star Wars they're the people you fact check everything yes and it was the best part of that meeting was the you know the the lore keeper uh, Justin he was like yeah i'm sorry mike he's right <laughs> that's that's absolutely true and like when you have moments like that you d- d- don't try and rub them in but like just they give they they make they make future conversations easier because it's quite clear you know what you're talking about so that that does help
0: it still just has to be terrifying to to write a star wars thing now that the last jedi guys come out which i fell in love with that movie but of course you've seen the reaction to it online just the the vitriol that comes out if you do something with star wars that might be bold in some capacity and people don't like it suddenly you have this moniker of oh you ruined this franchise you destroyed my childhood you did all these different things if you were to make a kotor 3 would you be more terrified of doing something like that today because of what we've seen with this new set of movies, with how people react and how Twitter works, or would you be fully comfortable with it?
1: I'd be pretty comfortable with it. Um, I think the danger becomes in terms of what you do with the franchise. So uh, I think one advantage that like, for example, uh, Knights of the Republic had is they purposely distanced distanced themselves from the core franchise just so they could have some breathing room. And I think that was a really smart move. And I think there's a lot of ways you can do that story-wise that can sort of head off any problems that people have with, oh, I don't like your interpretation of this or that. As long as you put it in a, the right context, people are a lot more forgiving. And I think that you know, by by sort of like turning back the clock, that was one way that uh, Bioware did it, and they were they were pretty smart to do so. And then there's other ways of design the lore within franchises where I think you can uh, you can avoid like a lot of. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of arrows being shot your way just by the choices you make in terms of what you're doing with a franchise. Like you don't, you don't want to get too possessed about certain elements, or say, "Well, you know, uh, uh, this, you know, this is this is the game where you kill Darth Vader." And you're like, <laughs> "I mean, you're like, you don't, you just don't do dumb stuff like that." Like, you're like, "Well, this is some some apprentice no one ever heard from because Vader struck him from the books." And like, you know, then he you know, it, it, there's all sorts of ways you you can design the the writing thrust for a game so you're not stepping on the toes of the franchise, and at the same time, you're not going to piss off the fans. Uh,
0: so, at this stage of research questions for this conversation, I moved from your Wikipedia to your LinkedIn. So if you get a notification oh, no. saying I stared at that, now you at least know why. And I noticed that you did level design in Wasteland too. And while you have an English degree, you also minored in fine arts with a focus on architecture.
1: Oh yes, fine know. arts. Oh yes, I oh, why Yes, <laughs> <laughs> excuse me. Very, <my>. very <laughs> fancy
0: title. I don't want to say arts. I think fine arts is way better. Is that where your level design skills and fascination and interest came from, from that architecture aspect, because you don't think of someone with an English degree being like, all right, they're going to go make levels (laughs) in the video game. So was it mostly the architecture aspect? No. Uh, The
1: the reason I got into architecture was because I love drawing maps for my uh, pen and paper RPG campaigns, whether it's Warhammer, you know, D and D or, you know, champions or super world or whatever. I, I enjoyed like drawing the maps for those as gameplay maps, which don't translate really well into real world buildings that will cause many disasters if they were ever built. Um, so I, I was like, Oh, okay, well I enjoy drawing maps. So therefore I'll enjoy architecture. So I spent about two years in architecture and the big advantage of that was it showed me I didn't want to be an architect. Uh, and also, however, one of the huge pluses was it, taught me all the ways of using different instruments to to draw maps get the perspectives down uh, get a feel for the flow of space how to create uh, vistas in the environment so all that stuff translated really well into level design for computer games and actually the uh, one of the guys i went to um, uh, went to school with at Virginia Tech for architecture, he actually ended up becoming like the, I think the, the art director or lead artist uh, over at Bungie. And we, we reconnected a while later and we were talking about how much architecture had actually helped us pursue game careers. <laughs> Which was which is pretty good, but like I, I can share some of the maps that uh, that I that I've drawn for like you know Fallout Two and you know uh, Wasteland Two and stuff like that. I can I can fire those over to you if you're ever curious to see those. But like they uh, it did help a lot for for training me to go okay, well. I could just like do a top down view of this really rough, but, or I could use all my skills from architecture and set up my drafting table and do a full isometric view showing how the walls obfuscate this and that. And, and actually like, and then, but the artists, when they get it, they're like, oh, well, I know exactly how to prop out this space, or wow, this is a lot easier than just sort of like, you know, winging it from like, you know, a few blocks. You know, stapled together with corridors, <laughs> and so yeah. So it uh, it, it was it, it's been a huge advantage, and I was really glad for the uh, the training, and I'm really glad that I'm not an architect, and everyone else should also be glad I'm not an architect because again, the the buildings would be dangerous. I would love to see those
0: maps. Maybe not those buildings because, like you said, they might be dangerous. But the maps would, would be have. interesting to see. Being in games for this long, being around this many people who make games, is there sort of just a, an itch to start learning the other aspects of it? Because you hear a lot of people, oh, they started as a producer, they suddenly did some, maybe some level design in a game like Wasteland 2. And then now they're doing this aspect and they're doing combat design and they're, they're creative directors suddenly. Have you had the desire as you've done narrative design and, and, and story doctoring and and d- d- narrative plumbing or whatever the term was earlier where you start to see other aspects of game design you want to kind of just get in on to learn more about it
1: i did that with uh with gameplay programming a little bit and also cinematic scripting um even as far back as uh, knights of the republic 2 uh but i've always kind of really just loved writing the most so i haven't really gravitated too far from that um and actually you know i wasn't even i never intended even getting computer games my My goal was to either write comic books or actually write pen and paper modules for like D&D. And I just took a computer game job because it actually paid you a salary as opposed to pen and paper games where they won't really pay you much of anything uh but then once i got into computer games i'm like wow this is actually you know like being a virtual game master and i'm actually getting a steady paycheck every two weeks you know it's not 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 great but like it's a steady work and then i just enjoyed it more and more so um and i've had a chance to sort of branch in other areas like a little bit of like uh like the game scripting like i said i did um uh concept art drawings for planescape torment because our concept artist our concept environment artist, uh, didn't speak English very well. So sometimes when I had to explain what, like what a church pew was or what an altar was, it was actually easier to draw it out and show him. And then he's like, Oh, I get it now. Um, because he, he, you know, you wouldn't know the exact term for pew and altar and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but then I started drawing like a whole ton of props for, for torment and that doing the concept art for that was fun. Did concept art for the levels, and I think, uh, I think our art lead was eventually like, hey, you know, Chris, maybe you should stop drawing someone and actually just, just, just get back to writing. And I'm like, oh, I'm sure there's plenty of words already in there.
0: <laughs> We've actually hit yeah. the word limit, so that's why I'm drawing now. Uh, <laughs> I've I've talked to Ray Davis and Marcus Leto on this podcast, and both of them had roles in Gears of War and Halo, and uh, they were able to see how crazy and big those franchises got over time. And maybe it was harder for them to see that in the moment when they're making it. And you were a designer on fallout too. And unfortunately it feels like a large chunk of fallout fans today think that series started with the third game. Uh Could you ever have imagined what that series would become back in 1998 when you were working on it?
1: Uh So I can't imagine. and uh, the reason were the reason is the circumstance of the time made it pretty clear that there wasn't a future for it at interplay. like and 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 the idea that it would go to another company was kind of alien at the time. like it wasn't something that someone would consider. So to make the long story even longer, uh, so Interplay around the time of Fallout 2 was beginning, it's uh, like financial decline and there were a lot of problems with, you know, getting projects out and even with Fallout 2, it was kind of a rushed project because we had to get it done so the people, you know, in other departments didn't didn't get laid off or fired. Um, So that was a lot of pressure there. Once Fallout 2 was over and then it was, you know, pretty buggy and then, you know, it didn't, I don't think it really did the franchise justice, You know, many years later, we had a chance to, work on Interplay's version of Fallout 3, which was Van Buren. And um, there wasn't a lot of confidence, uh, maybe at least from my perspective, that it was ever really going to happen because we had a really huge problem in that um, we lost Baldur's Gate 3. We lost the license to do D&D games because of, quote unquote, some accounting error, which means someone to get paid Mm -hmm. who who owns the license. And, um, there had been a lot of work done on Baldur's Gate 3. And I, I had personally done a lot of work on Fallout Van Buren, like I'd done like a pen and paper system and started, you know, laying out multiple areas and all the quest lines and the story and how the, you know, the Pip-Boy would work, all the stuff like I, and I was loving it. But when Baldur's Gate 3 got canceled, that was kind of like the, the cold hand on your shoulder and then followed by the whisper of it's never going to happen. <laughs> um... And uh, I realized that like, you know, even when we started working on it after Baldur's Gate 3, I'm like, there's no way, I'm sorry. It, it's extremely unlikely <laughs> that our version of Fallout 3 will ever see the light of day because this company is starting to make some really bad decisions. And sure enough, within a year, it of uh, Van Buren got uh, got canceled, but I, I already resi- resigned many months later and then, you know, worked on Champions of Noraf. And um, it was sad to leave it behind, but it, there was really nothing more to be done because it was quite clear the company wasn't really supporting the development of the project. And sometimes, like, and sorry not to make this no, even longer, it. even longer. but um, apparently they'd, they'd come to the conclusion that they were going to cancel uh, Van Buren like, well before, like, they they put together their demo. And I'm like, wow, so that all these people were sitting around working on something that you were going to axe. And like, you know, that's, (laughs) that's a part of their lives they've wasted. And it's something that you could have reached a decision on earlier, and then move those people onto more productive roles of the company, and maybe actually pull you out of the tailspin you're on. But no, that didn't happen. So, um, ended up I end up the resignation ended up being for the right reasons. I'm just sorry that those were the right reasons.
0: Did New Vegas feel like your second shot at getting Fallout right because you mentioned before Fallout 2 you didn't feel like you did it justice. So when you wrote on New Vegas was that kind of all these years later, I'm ready to do this one right. Yeah,
1: uh, I think a lot of the less well, a lot of the lessons that we'd um, we'd messed up on, on Fallout Two because I, I, there was a general lack of uh, creative creative oversight on Fallout Two um, and some design oversight failures as well. But the um, the big like so, for example, one lesson is Fallout Two. The one way that the the game was kind of the franchise was kind of spoiled by Fallout Two was the. There's so many end jokes in Fallout 2 and pop culture references. And I was certainly guilty of a a good many of them. But there was a lot of stuff that was thrown in there for sort of cheap laughs. And after a while, like, you can – there's – I would argue that as soon as you do that, you're already causing problems. But in Fallout 2, there was just so much of it. And uh, so when we were doing Van Buren, um, that was sort of the moment where I'm like, okay, well, you know, Fallout 2 – like made me realize that you should, you know, if, if if you want to include humor in a game, you know, look, look to the lore of the world and the franchise itself to create that humor. Like don't, don't bring it from outside. Um, and so with Van Buren, I'm sorry, not Van Buren um, with new Vegas. Like, so for example, we had a really funny, like uh, a new Vegas DLC, old world blues, but part of the principle of that humor was that, it has to come from the situation. It can't be something that you bring in from outside. And if you examine fallout, you know carefully enough, you you can find all sorts of things that you will you will either ruefully laugh at or things that are just genuinely funny. And it's all because of the stuff that already exists in that universe. So if we were doing humor, we tried to make it um, within the universe versus bringing it from outside. So that that was one of the things that um, I purposely tried to make. Uh, uh, make a a goal for for new vegas
0: Uh, you mentioned before with kotor 2 how maybe one of the benefits was not making it this main line affecting the the main storyline of star wars where suddenly it's oh this is about the death of darth vader or this is about where luke goes (laughs) because then people might get angry because they have certain ideas of that was it similar with new vegas where because it wasn't a numbered fallout game i'm not gonna call an offshoot but it was it was a game in between fallout 3 and fallout 4. did you feel like you had a bit more creative freedom when writing that where you could feel like maybe you can take a few more chances and try things because you're experimenting with a different side of this
1: well i think uh bethesda made the right call and said look just uh you know we're going to divide the
0: the us down the middle and you work
1: on the west coast and work on the east coast and part of the reason for that is because they can keep their plans for what they intend to do with the East coast consistent and then not worry about events in new Vegas affecting um, like, you know, uh, post events from fallout three or, you know, fallout four, or, you know, how many more fallouts the um. so I think that was a really good lore decision. And it'll sort of allow them to go, Hey, well, you can do this, you can do this detour. Um, and whatever you do probably won't chronically affect anything that we're doing. And that's kind of the goal. If you're going to share out your franchise, you want to be, you know, sort of localize what what another developer is doing just so it doesn't cause too many ripple effects or, you know, or problems for, uh, for the, for the mainline, uh, franchise. Uh, so, uh, but once we had that, like there were certain things that we had to do with the franchise, like, Hey, we're going to use the same engine. Like we should keep certain design pillars from fallout three. So for example, like there needs to be a big sig- signature city. In this case, it was Las Vegas. Like you have to stay on the West coast. Uh, a lot of the game mechanics are going to stay the same. And then uh, we just went from there and we were a studio that specializes in doing content on top of an engine. Cause we didn't have a lot of success making our own game engines. Um, so a lot of the the sort of foundation for New Vegas just came from the assets that are already been created for Fallout 3 and the game engine that was present for Fallout 3. And then we just add the content layer on top of it.
0: Can you even take bigger swings when it comes to DLC? I think there was Dead Money, Honest Hearts, uh, Old World Blues. And you think of one that always stands out for me is um, Bioshock 2 Minerva's Den, which ended up being this piece of additional content that actually stood out even more than the main game. And it got a lot of people, uh, Steve Gaynor, like big roles in other places, making Gone Home and stuff like that. So were you able to maybe try even more risky or just different things with the DLC in Fallout or maybe even other DLC you've done in other games?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one of the reasons I love working in DLC is because you can take the risks like like you've outlined and also because it's a dlc the financial damage that it could cause for making a a wrong decision is minimized uh so that that was great and then um dlcs I, i love for a lot of reasons usually uh you have a much smaller team uh people can do more things that they can't do in a larger team like uh you know on a an artist on you know New Vegas, hypothetically, like you know, might be responsible for doing like the character rigging on a model, and that's all they do for the entire project. But if they're on a DLC, like they might have a chance to do like uh, you know, prop out some levels or set up the in slide or basically just do something beyond like they the same job day after day after day, and that, that that's a huge plus. And then um, because the DLC is for New Vegas, especially, we're like, well, we can we can tell a whole of these short stories and. The same, the same world as Fallout, and we can tell you know a different one each time, and it, because it's a DLC and it's just like a short story experience, and that and and that was kind of relieving and fun because, you know, you're you're doing something different like over like five or six months versus, you know, to two or three years on a game, and then like also you're turning out turning out game content faster, so you get fan feedback uh, like a lot quicker, especially if you're doing something right, which is really gratifying. Uh, um, so yeah, the, the DLCs have a lot of positives about them. I, yeah, I just love them.
0: It's speaking of you know, not taking risk with in the, the major story or anything like that. I would assume you've created a lot of side characters in your life who maybe you don't see very often. Maybe you visit one town and they're there. They give you a quest, or maybe they don't even give you a quest. But you can kind of do kooky, crazy things with them because, like, I don't know, it's, this is here's this crazy wolf man in the corner over here. And he's selling steaks at a discounted price. And suddenly, boom, that's the character. It's the wolf man who sells steaks. Do you have a favorite side character or just a favorite character overall you've written, even if that's someone you see once while you go through this one section of a game?
1: Yeah, actually, I guess there's two. Um, well, the first one uh, kind of uh, lost, its, lost its strength once the Harry Potter books came out. But when we were doing uh, Planescape Torment, uh, it always occurred to me that it was kind of weird that people drank potions uh, to get powers because potions didn't seem to be the most delicious things <laughs> that you could use to convey power. So we had like a candy, a candy-based alchemist in, uh, in the Clerks Ward and torment. And I'm like, well, look, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna give someone like a potion-like effect, why not at least try and make it delicious? Because you know, ch- ch- chocolate's a much better means of conveyance than you know the bitter potion that tastes like sulfur. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Harry Potter came out and, and just ruined everything and I'm like okay well the, you know I, now my ideas are shitty so um, but the other one uh, was also because planscape was kind of an unusual franchise there there was one NPC that um, we had fun with uh, because in Planscape the whole the whole Principle of the the physics of the universe is that the more people believe in something, like it can, be, can become reality. So you're actually you know fighting for mental real estate in Planescape, which is pretty cool. But we were like, well, I wonder if there's some way to actually make that happen in the game. And then we noticed that at different points in the game, like there would be opportunities in dialogue where people would naturally want to ask what your name was, and you're like, well, you know, I'm I'm Adon. Like you just lie and say that. Mm-hmm. However. If you did that like twenty or thirty times, suddenly Adon would come into being. Like he would suddenly become an NPC that would materialize. And he's like, "Well, I don't really know too much about myself. <laughs> <laughs> I know what my name is." And then you like you get like a special ring off of him. But um, but the idea that you could actually imagine an NPC into existence by by propagating that lie for long enough until it became a reality was kind of something that we I hadn't considered before but planscape was kind of the the franchise that gave fuel to ideas like that
0: that stuff sounds so fun my former GameSpot editor kevin van ord has been and you might actually know him because i think you did some work on original sin too where he was doing a lot of writing on divinity original sin too and i you could tell how yep. how satisfying it is for him when people are falling in love with these characters it's like, <laughs> oh i wrote that guy like i i, I wrote her yep. she, she that's so cool that you appreciate that so uh, yeah that's one of those there's still a goal in my brain to eventually do work like that. And I think the the reward from seeing people connect with these characters, whether they're main characters or just, again, this dude who's selling you something, whether it's candy potions or steaks on the side of the road is fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely makes the long hours worthwhile because when someone someone says they appreciate your character or you see someone cosplaying a character, you help design, like, it, it's it's the most flattering thing in the world. You're like, wow, I, you know, I left an impression, I inspired someone, and even, even though I was working at 1 a.m. writing that character and I thought it was going to turn out <laughs> terribly, someone liked it. I'm like, oh, yay, and then I go cry a it. <laughs>
0: now i promise you the first if i ever cosplay i'm just going to cosplay that candy uh, potion person that's going to be my first ever it'll just be the weirdest inside joke ever uh, is there a single quest whether it's a main quest or a side quest that you're proudest of one that really stands out from i know it's a big pretty big list you're pulling from at this point but is there one where you're like man that really came together even better than i could have ever imagined
1: that's tough um so i'm gonna say no <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there, there are a lot of quests that uh, ended up um, not making it into games, which I, I, I uh, regret. The, but but then, then again, what I'd say is like the nice thing about computer game development is that chances are like, you know, so for example, for Fallout, uh, the, Fallout 2, there was supposed to be a, a number of areas that, that got cut from the final version of the game. And thank God they were cut because the game was already out of scope. Uh, but one was like, "Hey, you can travel to the EPA and Fallout 2, and there's all this crazy you know, science stuff there." And um, I, I, I did the uh, paper layout for that area, and like there was like a talking toaster and like holograms and all sorts of other stuff. And but then I eventually got cut, and I was a little bit sad. And I'm like, "Okay, well that's game development. You know, stuff just gets cut." But then New Vegas rolled around, and then I'm like, "Oh, wait a minute! Like all those ideas." that I had for the EPA, like I can breathe them back into to New Vegas. So we can include you know, holograms and, you know, dead money. And we can have the, you know, psychopathic toaster and, you know, old world blues, which, uh, which Travis Stout, the writer for the toaster did a fantastic job. Um, it's a very scary toaster. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like it's mostly the stuff like you, you see on the, the cutting room floor and you're like, you know what? I bet that would have really been a great quest. Uh, and so sometimes like you, you have some sadness about that, but, well, now I, don't I
0: need any- to know. Now I need to know what because you you said you did breathe some life into other quests that were on the cutting room floor. Is there still something that's on that was on the cutting room floor that has not been in a different game that you've written where you're like, man, that would be the coolest quest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Although uh, looking back, I'm not sure it would be the coolest, but I I really wanted to get it in because we had the we got the voice acting done for it. So in um in Planescape, there's, uh, there's a there's a mockery of uh, a. Diablo dungeons, where it's called the Modron Maze, and you go in there, and like it's sort of procedurally generated, and like they all act, they all act like you know cannon fodder monsters, and basically like it, it's making fun of the whole you know uh, uh, plunder and loot procedural generation RPGs that were pretty popular at the time and still are to an extent. Um, but while what would happen is so this this Modron Maze. Um, had a lot of cliche quest in it, like, oh, kill the evil wizard and, you know, uh, stuff like that. But there was also one quest that we intended where the evil wizard in the Modron maze would uh, capture one of your party members and treat her like, you know, I've captured the princess. Um, but the companion who gets kidnapped, um, who's this this Puritan succubus called, called Fall From Grace, who really likes um, seeing as much of the world and having as many experiences as possible because that's the kind of faction that she's allied with in Planescape. She actually gets really excited about being kidnapped. She's like, oh, my God, I've never been kidnapped before. This is really exciting. Oh, my God, what happens next? And the Jennifer Hale did the voice acting for it, and the lines for it were so fun that I really regret that that wasn't actually – we didn't actually have time to put that in, in, uh, in Torment because um,
0: I think players would have gotten a, a good laugh out of it. I feel like that would drive me crazy still having that out there. I'm one of those, of course, you always throw away writing. You always throw away work once things change. But I always get sad when I have to do that and put it in this folder of just like, this could eventually work again. But having the full voice acting (laughs) has to be a bummer to just be sitting out there knowing like, oh, this could have been so cool. Maybe it's just one small piece of DLC you add back into that game with just that specific voice line and quest line uh (laughs) last major thing um you've worked on like we mentioned star wars fallout all these different major projects um and now you're working with ken levine which i would assume is kind of a cool dream project for you but is there any developer or franchise that you still haven't worked with that at some point in your career you really hope you're able to work with whether it be a maybe a movie franchise that moves into games or an old school game that you'd like to see revived is there anything that really stands out
1: so I hesitate because uh, what, what, one of the nice things about freelancing is that you you can just go out and look for those opportunities or they'll suddenly show up in your inbox one day. Uh, so I I have to say that I think I am working on everything that I've wanted to work on wow. with the people with the people I've wanted to work on. And it's been crazy. Like the the Ken Levine thing it came out of nowhere. Like that was, you know, it's on hey, there's an email in your inbox. And I'm like, would I want to work with Ken Levine? Sure. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I'm working on just about everything that I want to work on, and with the people I want to work on, and it's great.
0: That has to feel really good. It uh, feels fantastic. fantastic. Uh, last thing, then, w- w- what are you working on right now that you can actually talk about, and where can people find you on social media? Well, let's
1: see. Uh, so, uh, Into the Breach uh, came out for Switch. So, if you're uh, if you have an experience Into the Breach and you have a you have a Switch, you should give it a shot because apparently it's it's being
0: received really really it's currently well. Apparently, in my cart, I still need to buy it but yeah it's uh,
1: yeah the amount of feedback i've gotten on social media like hey chris you did a great job i did a breach for the switch and i'm like i i I didn't make it like (laughs) magically appear for the switch
0: like that that was was, you you flipped flipped (laughs) that switch that which that's what people think porting games is and you're like i don't know just put it on the switch press this red button
1: (laughs) yeah like the subset game guys uh justin ma and um, uh matthew davis like yeah they uh they worked really hard on getting the gameplay loop for that, and they, they got it going for the Switch. And based on all the feedback I've gotten, both in inbox and on social media, it's going over really well. So kudos to those guys. Also, um, I uh, finished up work on uh, Pathfinder Kingmaker, which is uh, based on the uh, the Pathfinder franchise from, from Paizo. And that's coming out September 25th, so I'm pretty excited about that. And obviously, there's Dying Light 2 and uh, the project uh, with Ken at Ghost Story, which is the name of the, the company that um, uh, Ken, Ken is in charge of. The and if people need to reach me, uh, I'm I'm up on Twitter, Chris Avalon, It's very imaginative, I you know. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. and, uh, and if it, if you, as, long, as long as they're short questions like that can be answered within a, a tight Twitter character limit, feel free to like ping me on there and go, hey, I had a question about this or that, or how do you do this? And if it's a short answer, I'll give it. If it's a longer answer, I'll probably say redirect people to my Gmail account and go, look, it's a long answer, and it may take me a while to get back to it, but <laughs> I'll do my best.
0: Great. Well, uh, Chris, thanks so much for doing this. When I first went from games media into game development, What you do is what I was staring at in terms of like, man, one day I really hope to do narrative design to write characters, to write dialogue. And I'm a producer right now, but that's always been the goal. You're someone who I appreciate very much. I I love your games. And yes, that does include going all the way back to Champions of Norath and talking about Dark Alliance. So I'm really happy we finally got to do this and can't wait to see the 300 projects you're working on uh, come out.
1: (laughs) Uh, I'm looking forward to
0: it as well. All right. Great. Thanks everyone for listening. Hope we tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.